1: So today we have a a really interesting founder, you know, a founder that uh, has, you know, been around the block now, you know, for quite some time. Uh, He's coming from the world of corporate, you know, and really always in the innovation side of things. But, you know, now definitely he took a chance and, and he's making a killing. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Nick Hazel. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Alejandro.
1: Nice to be on the show. So originally born in England, and obviously raised there, you did boarding school and all of that good stuff. But how was how was life growing up there?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure boarding school you'd ever you'd ever uh, count as good stuff. But yeah, no, I'm 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 English. Um, I'm kind of Dutch as well, and I'm Australian now. RAF parents traveled a lot. That's probably why I ended up traveling the world. Grew up school in school um, in in England, and uh, went to university, studied manufacturing at Cambridge University. I still have probably the strongest links actually now in, in the UK. And started off wanting to be an aerospace engineer, which was my first career before I uh discovered the wonders of food.
1: You know, it's interesting how in, in the UK the boarding school is is such a such a big thing. I mean, obviously the I, I'm originally from Spain where people stay with their parents until they're like in their forties, you know, and they and they and they get married, right? But in the UK, you know, and, and obviously I, I, you see that in the US too, where people go off to college. But in the UK, I guess that that sense of independence, you know, is really formed when you are going on your own to boarding school very early on in your life. So, so how was that particularly for you? How do you think that shaped your personality and being, you know, with the uncertain?
2: yeah, we should maybe involve my therapist in it. I think I think boarding school um, teaches you about resilience. If you can survive in that environment, you can survive pretty much anywhere. And the other thing I think for me is a, a sort of restlessness, always wants to move country, always wanted to be in different places, get to get new experiences. Um, and I think that's part of boarding school and part of a, a service's upbringing.
1: And in, in this case for you, I mean, Lego was also quite of, of your upbringing. So uh, what point do you start to really feel the love for for solving problems for putting pieces together
2: yeah i think that's always been um you know lego is a it's a i think there's a lot of people particularly engineers who probably put their first engineering experience down to lego and lego is funny because i kind of look at lego now and it seems different when i was doing lego all you had was bricks and you just you had your bricks and you had your imagination and you would create things from nothing now you seem to have kits that end up in a uh, you know, in a Harry Potter train or something. And so there's one set of instructions and you follow the instructions and you get a result. That isn't Lego to me. Lego is something where you, you had a load of bricks and you create something from from nothing. So my brother was an engineer as well. He ended up at Imperial College. And so for me to study engineering, clearly I was I was good at technical stuff, good at maths, good at school. And so going to Cambridge to study engineering was, was seemed a, a really good logical move for me.
1: So then what happened after you graduated from the University of Cambridge?
2: Well, I I, I went to aerospace. Uh, they sponsored me through Cambridge, and I felt, you know, I still loved aerospace. The technical side of aerospace, I thought, was great. And I, got, I landed a really great job in aerospace. I was uh, manufacturing for actually kind of a secret – so it's 30 years on now, so I can say about it. But it was kind of a secret manufacturing division that was making – Um, countermeasures and bugs. And, um, you know, sometimes you wondered where these things would end up. Uh, It seemed seemed almost sort of like James Bond like but that was um, I was I was manufacturing electronic uh, devices for aerospace. And it was technically brilliant. There were a load of brilliant engineers and and brilliant scientists who were working there. But um, I got the opportunity to um, to switch company and to move to a company I'd always admired. And that was Mars, which is a uh, big chocolate factory in Slough in the UK where I became a shift manager and uh, and that was my first sort of move into food which has always been part of my life I've always been into cooking and into food and I uh, ended up as a production manager in in Slough in chocolate and that was my career beginning of a uh, 20 year career in Mars that's a
1: that's an amazing switch from aerospace to chocolates so I mean it's a remarkable and obviously for you as well while you were uh, with Mars, you really were present to how excited you were around innovation and research and development. So, how was that, you know, process for you?
2: Trying to figure out something better was always part of what what I did, and and sometimes in manufacturing that's not terribly helpful when you're running a production line. But um, in Mars, there were quite a few sort of opportunities we had to to just figure out different ways of running things that would that would either be cheaper or better quality. And I I can remember. Again, sometimes not, not terribly valued when you're changing, you know, it's not for a shift manager to change recipes or whatever, or do experiments, but that was always very much part of, of how I thought. And luckily enough, when I was in Mars and I, I'd actually moved from Slough to, to Holland to the food part of the business and was part of a team building a, a big food factory, there was an opportunity when the R&D director lost their, their um, product development manager, um, moved to, uh, their, their manager moved to, to China, there was a vacancy he had a problem but he knew me and he knew how i thought and he recognized that i actually shouldn't be in manufacturing or in engineering or but i should be um, in r&d that was for me home that was that was where i i had permission to change things i had permission to think things through in a different way that was uh for me uh, i'm i'm still in touch with that that particular person he was he ended up as head of uh, r&d for mars he's been a mentor all through my career
1: so then let's talk about, you know, in this case, after you do Mars, then you go to PepsiCo. Uh, but then there's there's something there that happened that really got you into this next path that would get you to where you are today as a founder, no? Which was more consulting slash continuing the education. So so what was that path, you know, like in, in your in your career?
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. So after Mars, and and I moved to Australia with Mars um, to head up R&D for their food company there, I moved to PepsiCo, um, which was a a big move, very scary after so many years at at Mars. And then after five years in PepsiCo, I was made redundant. Um, So R&D in Australia, a bit precarious, it's a small market, and there was a centralization going on. And so I started, I fell into consulting which gave me a lot of experience in a lot of different companies. It got me um, working with the CSIRO, which is the big science institute in Australia, part government funded, but also started to teach. Um, there was a new degree started up at, at UTS, University of Technology, Sydney, called a uh, Bachelor of Creative Intelligence and Innovation. And uh, I was there at the beginning trying to figure out how to teach other disciplines how to innovate. And uh, it was a very um ahead of its time degree it's it's insanely popular now it's it has thousands of people applying for very few places um but it's it essentially if you if you're a lawyer or a engineer or a physicist or a journalist it really doesn't matter i think there's 25 degrees which you do in parallel and it teaches you how to be innovative and uh, it does it in a multidisciplinary way so a journalist is thrown in with an engineer is thrown in with a with a lawyer and they try and figure out how to what the methods are because every discipline has a has an innovation method it's just that the what an engineer does isn't recognized by what a marketeer does and isn't recognized by what a uh, a designer does but they're all relevant tools so i taught that for four years um and and that sort of actually really opened my my eyes to to startups, to entrepreneurialism, I actually taught startups, even though I'd never done a startup. I've, I've focused a lot on entrepreneurialism, like what it's like to try and innovate in big companies and how insanely difficult it is, and why why big companies actually resist innovation with a with a fierceness that, that is really quite quite insane. Uh, it's like innovation is a, is some sort of disease that the immune system has to try and kill. Um, there is it's a very useful analogy, actually, that. But yeah so I was in a really interesting position when when I got a call which was probably the starting story of of V2 food so then let's talk about that because
1: you received a really interesting call that got you into this journey
2: yeah it was it was from uh, Martin Cole who's actually my chief scientist now, but Martin Cole was head of uh, food and agriculture for the CSIRO. Um, and I'd known him for many years, done not lots of projects with CSIRO in 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 some sort of really interesting food technology spaces. And he gave me a call and said, I've got an opportunity for you. Are you interested? Do you know anything about plant-based meat? Are you interested in, in, in doing something there? So yes, I was interested, found out more. And basically what had happened was that he'd been in a meeting earlier with... Um, a guy called Jack Cowan, who's the founder of Hungry Jacks, which is the biggest franchise, which is a franchise in, in Australia. It's the same as Burger King in other countries. And uh, a venture capital um, guy, Phil Moyle from Main Sequence, which is the main venture capital arm of the CSIRO. And basically, they'd, they'd come to a conclusion that no one was doing plant-based meat in Australia and that CSIRO had technology that could be relevant to that space. But they needed somebody to start a company. So, um, I did a bit of due diligence and, uh, said yes, and then found myself on a, on a plane to, um, San Francisco where there was an alternative protein conference, uh, which I wanted to go to, to try and find out what was, what was going on, what, what was happening in this space. And, uh, yeah, found myself in, in a horrible hotel on the 17th of January in twenty twenty nineteen. So, uh, yeah, two years ago, feeling uncomfortable and thinking about, well, why, why do I feel so uncomfortable? Um, and it occurred to me that one of the reasons I felt uncomfortable was there was like 50 CEOs of alternative protein companies. And I reckoned I was the only non-vegan in the group. And I was thinking about that and saying, well, why is this being defined as a vegan problem? Because it isn't a vegan problem. It's about people, all people in the world like to eat meat but we're eating way too much of it for it to be sustainable. And I think that's been a core sort of framing of the problem, which has helped V2 food um, navigate its journey over the last couple of years. And what's kind of serendipitous is the 17th of January is also uh, the date when the Eat Lancet report was published. Now the Eat Lancet report was the first time sort of environmental sustainability was combined with nutrition to sort of answer the question, what should we be eating? Um, And the answer came back loud and clear we should be eating less meat. Um, and that's been, that report has been cited enormously since, but it was a real landmark, um, report. So that those, were that date, 17th of January also happened to be the date when, uh, when the seed money for V2 food came through. And, um, so that'll stick pretty much in my head, but that was the journey starting. Um, and then we got to the product development after that. So that was, a that was a journey in itself. So let's talk about eating whoppers every week. Every week? No, more than that. I, I must admit, um <laughs> the, before I ate the whopper, I you know, I went around uh, US and, and Europe, looked at all the competition, found out what, what it was. And then also, what's the gold standard? So I, I I wasn't a big burger eater, I must admit, but I ate a lot of burgers, obviously including the whoppers. But what was the, the best burgers I could find? Just to get in my head a sense of, well, what is it that is the gold standard? What are we what are we aiming for? and then it was an insane journey where i was moving from one r&d facility of the csiro where they specialized in sort of texture and protein manipulation um to another facility where they 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 had the flavor chemists and the and and then another facility where the whopper was being made and basically i did that journey um once a week for for about uh 20 weeks iterating all the time taking Taking learnings from one, moving to the next, taking learnings from another, trying to turn it into a burger, did that in, in, insanely quickly. We really felt that we we had a we didn't have any time to waste. Um, till a point in June, um, when we were tasting the results of our R and D, and we'd had some pretty tough feedback up until then. You know, really tough feedback about you know, it's nowhere near good enough. This is not never going to work, and and with some serious question marks. And we had a blind tasting with Jack and, um, and again, Jack said, you know, look, you've really got to do some more work on this This is not this isn't this isn't it at all. It's got to get better. But he was eating his own whopper. He made no comment about what we did before. And that was the moment we said, right, we've got you. We're going to launch. We've got something now. Um, And then, of course, the, the question was, well, yeah, but Christmas is coming. Um, you can't launch during Christmas, and so I asked, "Well, when, when's the earliest you can launch, and uh, when, when's the latest you can launch uh, without interfering with Christmas?" And it was October, which gave us, I think, at the time, like two and a half months to go from prototypes to to launch. But we had to do it because we weren't going to lose five months um, and launch in February. So that was the date set, and then we we started working um, with the Whopper Factory to try and figure out how they can to how they can actually make plant-based meat.
1: So then, at what point do you realize that you're tasting something that makes sense and that is delicious?
2: Yeah, when you're in product development, it's 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 there. There are lots of little breakthroughs, and so when you're so close to it, you you don't get a sense of oh wow, this is amazing because it's it's incremental. But there's been a the, the number of big breakthroughs where you're sort of dancing, where you think finally we've cracked juiciness, or finally we've cracked chewiness, or or you know. So what is really exciting is when you do you do give your product to a consumer um, and it's clear they've got no idea that it's not meat and then you tell them afterwards you've just eaten uh, v2 there's no meat in that and the surprise and the 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 shock and and sometimes delight uh, that's when you really know that you've got it and uh look from my perspective we're not there yet you know this is a journey there is no limit to how good we can make plant-based meat um, we're not limited by the genetics of a cow. We can take it anywhere for us. It's a, it's improving all the time, but when you, when you, when you get reactions from the consumer, it's the same, um, all through my career, it's a real buzz when you see your product in the supermarket. And and what I always do is I always sort of stand back and watch, you know, and sort of will people to buy my product. And, and if they do, then I'll, I'll often go and ask them, you know, why do they buy that? And, and do they like it? But it's that thrill never goes away when you know that, uh, that lots of people are buying your product and enjoying it. Absolutely. So, so in this
1: case, how much capital have you guys
2: raised today, Nick? Well, in total, it's more than a hundred million. Um, the first raising was a was a couple of million um, in seed, and then we did another th- thirty million raise at Series A, and we closed Series B um, in November of last year, uh, and that was a uh, seventy million Australians, so about fifty million US. Um, but we've got a lot of building to do. We've we've built a, a big factory uh, in Victoria, and uh, we've got a, an awful lot of uh, R&D and growth ahead of us. Um, and our growth plans are, are insanely ambitious. We kind of see this as an existential problem in the world. You know, there's 10 billion people. There's a, a meat industry which is scheduled to be doubling in the next 20 years if nothing happens. And there is physically not enough land on the earth to support that. It is a physical impossibility. So what's the alternative that's going to exist within the next 20 years that's going to be the size of the meat industry? And uh, venture capital have done the maths on this as well. That's why they're all piling into this area. Um, you know, it's a trillion dollar industry that will be created. And we're pretty keen to be one of the, the players that make it makes this happen. So, So the speed at which we're operating now is we have in our values something called dangerously fast. Which which is, the two words are important. If it doesn't feel scary and it doesn't feel a little bit dangerous, then we believe we're not going fast enough. And you know,
1: it's it's interesting. You know, going back to the to the amount raised. I mean, it's it's pretty impressive um, that you guys have been able to raise all of that. Um, being outside of the U.S., so is it, how challenging is to move through all these different financing cycles where perhaps capital is a bit limited. You no, know, in in when you're outside of the US where you have the big funds
2: yeah but we're not outside the, i mean it's we're it's, it's you know it's a it's the world's a small place um we have connections with the US so some of our investors are silicon valley investors in series b we deliberately actually looked outside of silicon valley and looked outside of traditional investors and wanted to bring in strategic investors who could help us particularly with developing markets with china there's no way you're going to solve this problem globally if you're not doing something in asia and not doing something in china that's where meat consumption is increasing the most so um we've we've been able to attract investors from 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 everywhere and actually it's 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 not true there there is a lot of money out there for this um people are looking for where to put their money in sustainable ventures and Cost of capital is so low now that um, that that basically people looking to invest their dollar in sustainable um, businesses are prepared to take more risks. So that's been our experience. Um, I don't want to put it say that it was that easy. I, it's a it's a big effort when you're in raising that amount of money, but um, there's certainly a lot of people looking for investments of this type.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So so plant-based meat, you know, it's definitely uh, top of mind. For for many 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 people, you know now something that people are talking about, you know quite a bit. So where do you think that that this world that we're living in, you know, is going to be like from from eating from a from a eating meat perspective? I mean, how how that is going to change, and and where do you think V2 food is is going to be? Let's say we were to wake up in a world in five or ten years from now.
2: Uh, I think the plant-based meat will become a regular item on your on your shopping list, I think. Um, and people will be genuinely making a decision, you know, shall I, shall I have beef or shall I have uh, chicken or shall I have V2? And more and more, they'll be choosing um, V2 or, or another plant-based meat. The key unlock for that is, is that it's available in the, in the places that you buy your meat, that it's affordable, that it, it isn't more expensive than meat. And this is something that's been key in, in our development. We developed a business model and a, and a product really isn't more expensive than meat um, we're the first to have done that um and it 's taken a lot of thinking about what our business model is but for me, meat was always the most expensive thing in my in my grocery um, basket um i didn 't want to pay more for meat; I buy meat when it's on special offer so So why would consumers want to pay more for for plant based meat but I think it's going to be a, a a mainstream alternative. My personal view is is that um it's not useful. To try and destroy the meat industry it, it really isn't useful i think that we will be eating meat um into the future but a lot less of it and i think also the meat industry will become more sustainable if you frame this up as a sustainability question um you can have unsustainable plant-based meat and you can have sustainable meat it is possible um, to do that and i think that that's what's gonna gonna happen in the world is that we will we will have a, a smaller amount of sustainable meat uh, but Probably in, you know, hopefully in about 10 years time, we'll, we will have crossed the boundary where people are eating more plant-based meat than they're eating animal meat. And
1: for the people that are listening to get an understanding on on how big B2 food is today, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else?
2: Well, it changes every day because, um, as I say, we've, we're only two years old. So um, we're now getting up to, I think, about 50, 50 employees but uh, we're commissioning factory at the moment, so that's going to go up quite a lot in terms of size. Yeah, we're we're the biggest in Australia. Um, we're across all of the major supermarkets in Australia, and uh, obviously Hungry Jacks. And we're we're extending into into food service in Australia. But what's really exciting is that we already have quite a big footprint in in Asia. We're with Burger King franchises in in. Many of the Asian countries now, so we've won those um, those deals and are closing deals with a number of um, partners across Asia. Um, so already we are spreading, and our export is a significant part of our volume. But to be honest, all of our growth is ahead of us. We're we're still very much a startup. We're growing at ten x per year, and from one period to the next, last four periods we've been growing at fifty percent per period. So it's it's a uh, this is, uh, this is not business as usual. Um, it's, it's all about growth. Absolutely.
1: And imagine, you know, one of the questions that I, that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, if you had, I mean, imagine we have the opportunity here to put you into a time machine. Because even though you guys have been in business since 2019, there's obviously so many different things that have happened since then. Because being in a startup like building and scaling something from the ground up, There's just so many fires, so many things that happened, so many lessons learned. So, if you could go back in time and have a chat with your younger self, maybe that younger Nick that was thinking about, you know, going at it with V2 Food, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self before launching a business, and why, knowing
2: what you know now? Oh, geez, that's such a difficult question. You know, the first thing that that I would say is, is Absolutely nothing. Because, you know, if if I'd kind of known what was going to hit us, you know, through these last two years, you know, in terms of the, you know, COVID and pivoting and and the problems, and, you know, I probably wouldn't have done it. (laughs) So actually, ignorance is your biggest weapon. um, When you're doing a startup, if you, you know, and now I kind of, you know, I've read Steve Jobs and everything and, and, and he talks about being you know staying foolish um that's what he's talking about you've got to stay you've got actually if be, being naive is the biggest good thing i've the word that but it, it really is a, an asset for a startup founder because if you know too much then you wouldn't even try it would just be too hard on the positive uh, thing what would i've done different it's difficult it's very difficult because i think that we we've we've done an insanely good good job in a in a very very short space of time, so it's difficult to imagine how we could have done better. I think for me, certainly last year, and I've said to myself, this is I need holiday. I didn't take a holiday for a long time, and given that my my biggest role is is to lead and to provide the vision and also the technical expertise and the and creativity, come up with with solutions to um, difficult problems. If you don't take time out to to rest. And to nurture yourself a little bit, you are not going to be as creative. So so I would have said be a bit kinder to yourself, particularly last year, which was an insanely difficult year, and take some time out.
1: Good, good advice there. Very, very wise words. So Nick, so for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
2: Look, we're uh, we're on all the socials. So if you just if you just uh type in v2 food, you'll you'll come up with us. Um I'm on LinkedIn and uh you know we, we're not in the states at the moment but uh, of course we we we're looking at that and we we're looking at, uh, at, at partners there so probably the normal things um take a look at us on 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 our website and on the socials and and you can follow our journey we're pretty pretty much out there in the media we we quite like sharing our story um because we're not doing this alone we're part of a big ecosystem a big movement and i think we all we all move forward together so uh we're very very happy to share um, our journey and uh, share what we're doing and um, and hopefully we can make something really big happen in, in the world uh, I know that we need it so uh, so uh, so let's get out there and, and make something happen
1: I love it well Nick thank you so much for being on the deal maker show today
0: oh
2: it was uh, it was great for you to have me thanks Alejandro.
0: if you like the show make sure that you hit that subscribe button if you could leave a review as well that would be fantastic and if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.